Welcome back to our week of devotionals in the book of Lamentations. Stuart Holman here as we explore Jeremiah's series of five laments, five poems of grief and mourning over Jerusalem's destruction uh, with her people forced into exile in Babylon. And today we're up to the second of these poems of lament. Although not immediately apparent, the book of Lamentations has a very carefully wrought structure, one that helps make sense of the book, that teaches us actually how to use it and draws attention to the most important parts. The five laments are clearly marked out by the five chapters in our English translations, but what's not so clear in our English translations is that each poem is a kind of acrostic based on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 begins with A or Aleph, verse 2 begins with B or Bet, and verse 3 begins with C and so on through the 22 verses of each chapter. But in the middle section, in chapter 3, there's a, a triple whammy through the alphabet for 3 times 22, 66 verses. Three verses with A, three with B, three with C, and so on. But because this is all very Hebrewish kind of poetry, the author hasn't been totally constrained by the framework. He's, there's a few intentional glitches, and, and, and actually as the book progresses, it gets a little loose in this structure, allowing a couple of verses to be out of order. Something like putting the G before the F and the Q in front of the M and the N. And so by chapter 4, the structure is starting to loosen up a little bit. And then when Jeremiah gets to chapter 5, there are still 22 verses, but they don't follow that acrostic framework at all. As though the structure that was once important is now not such a big deal. It's not as though Jeremiah wasn't able to finish the crossword and so he just cheated in the last chapter, right? He, he was absolutely capable of the literary challenge but he intentionally chose not to do it for a reason. So why this structure? Scholars argue, but here's the one that makes most sense to me. The reason is that these laments are meant to be used by the people of the exile. They are meant to be prayed over and over again. And through their repetition, as the mourner works their way through each letter of the alphabet, cycle and again, there is both a steady repeating meter as well as an organic development. The grief is being systematically expressed and worked through. You see, grief is a process. It's work to be done, and sometimes working through tragedy in prayer requires repetition and revisiting of telling God over and again the same thing, working it through, working it out. And when we're lamenting with God, it's okay to keep banging on with the same question, the same complaint, or the same plea for mercy. And eventually, over time, that structure starts to loosen up. As resolution grows, the need for a tight framework is lessened. Having become practiced at lament, the training wheels fall away, and the pure cry for mercy comes to the fore. And as I've said, scholars can debate this, but... When we pray our way through grief, this approach makes sense. Coming to chapter 2 now, it will come as no surprise that the many themes introduced in the first chapter are repeated and developed. The first movement, verses 1 to 10, reviews God's judgment on his people. How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. 
He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonour. In the midst of this judgment, it seems as though God has made Jerusalem his enemy. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. He's laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He's destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. So the second movement of Lamentations 2 from verses 11 through 17 highlights the great tragedy of God's judgment. What has happened is no mistake, it's judgment and how tragic that is. So verse 11, my eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city. As their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. And well, that's the second movement. And moving forward, the third and the final movement of Lamentations 2 verses 18 through 22 draws together all this tragedy and it turns it into an appeal to God for mercy. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. You walls of daughter Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night. As the watches of the night begin, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. Look, Lord, and consider. Whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they've cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and Young women have fallen by the sword. You've slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. So this cry for mercy at the end of chapter 2 is gut-wrenching. Surely enough is enough, right? Surely God will quickly relent and allow for a happy ending. But as we found with chapter 1, so also here in chapter 2, there is no cheap or quick resolution to grief. There is still a path to be trodden, a journey to be completed for the righteous as they lament God's judgment upon his people. I find particularly poignant throughout Lamentations 2 is the tenderness of the term daughter Zion. Jerusalem is God's beloved place. Moreover, this is a mourning over the loss 
of relationship that is embedded in the temple and the covenant. God's people have become estranged from him, even to the extent that he has treated them like an enemy. When we experience the loss of a treasured relationship, maybe through death or through infidelity or because of geography or circumstance or time, the loss of any relationship leaves us with grief. And the process of lamenting and mourning that loss is helped by naming things as they really are, even as we plead to God for mercy. Certainly, that's what we see taking place here, right? And the discipline with which we've observed the writing of Jeremiah's lament can also help us. It implies that these prayers of lamentations should be used as a disciplined act, a decision which we make in all seriousness in order to face problems which are otherwise hard to face. Lamentations, along with many of the Psalms of Lament, can work in this way, not merely teaching our minds, but giving us the means of expressing that which is too hard for us and tutoring our minds and our hearts in the process. Jeremiah's lament may not be our lament, but it is nonetheless helpful to us as a teacher and a guide. Feeling Jeremiah's grief and sadness over the sins of God's people and praying along with him can be training wheels for our own laments. We are helped to grow into a godly perspective on grief, particularly grief over sin. In tomorrow's devotional, we're going to see how hope actually arises in the midst of sadness. At the most important point of the book of Lamentations, we'll be reminded of God's great faithfulness and trustworthiness. So I look forward to seeing you then.